The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Who's your one? That's the question that we're going to be asking each other and asking ourselves over the course of the next few weeks and months as we embark on an evangelism journey together. Here's what I've realized and here's what the staff of Parkwood have realized. We talk about reaching the world with the gospel. And you heard from the video, the numbers are astounding. Billions of people in the world, hundreds of millions of lost people. It can get overwhelming. In fact, the most overwhelmed probably I've ever been with the missionary task was when my wife and I were overseas. The International Mission Board put us in a city of 33 million people and with this job description. Make sure everyone here hears the gospel and has a chance to respond. And I said, what? Are you kidding me? The two of us are responsible for getting the gospel to 33 million? And he went, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. Your responsibility is actually the northernmost section of the city. I said, oh, good. Whew. How many people live there? 1.5 million was the answer. So it can get overwhelming, right? So what we've done, we've taken all those numbers and everything, and we've bulleted it down to one thing, one question. Who is your one? Not who's your 33 million, who's your 1.5 million, who's your 1,000, who is your one? We're asking you to prayerfully identify one person in your relational network, someone you already know, who you can commit to doing three things for. Pray for them, deepen the relationship with them, and then Lord willing, share the gospel with them. So in order to launch us on this evangelism journey, I'm going to preach a two-week sermon series on evangelism. So this week and next week. Now, my goal in this is not to have everybody run out of here on fire and share the gospel with everybody. My goal is not to give you some magical trick, foolproof method for sharing the gospel because that doesn't exist. My goal here is to help you and help me help us begin to cultivate a lifestyle of evangelism because that is what we are called to do. For those of you that don't know me, I am Scott Hand. I'm the pastor for community engagement and church planting here at Parkwood. Um, I spent about 10 years overseas with the International Mission Board along with my wife and my children uh, in East Asia. I tell you that simply because a lot of the things I say this morning will make more sense if you know that about us. It is truly my joy to preach the word of God to you this morning. Our text will be 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Please grab your Bible and turn there or turn on your Bible and scroll there. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one, in the, in one of the, underneath one of the seats near you. While you're turning, I do want to remind you, if you're new with us this morning, take a Connect card in the seat back in front of you and fill that out and uh, put it in the offering plate at the end of the service. We'd love to know you're here and to be able to connect with you further. Will you please stand now as I read the word of God? Starting in verse 11. <clears throat> Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. 
We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for your goodness and grace and mercy and love in our lives. I pray that you are here with us. We know and trust that you are. I pray that your presence will be felt. May I decrease and you increase. Speak to us this morning. Do your work in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The main idea of the sermon this morning is this. Motivated by the fear of the Lord, the love of Christ, and the responsibility as Christ's ambassadors, followers of Jesus live lives consumed with the ministry of reconciliation. Now, in order to begin properly, I need to remind you of a few things in regards to context. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff preached a sermon on an introduction to 1 Corinthians. Now, everything he said then can also be applied today to 2 Corinthians. It's the same author, the Apostle Paul. It's the same recipients, the Church of Corinth in a near context, but then all believers in the broader context. And it's the same evil, corrupt, and pagan culture. The main difference between 1 and 2 Corinthians is that 2 Corinthians is much more biographical or personal about Paul. We learn more about the life of Paul in 2 Corinthians than we do any other um, source in ancient history. In 2 Corinthians, Paul confronts the Corinthians head on by addressing the worldliness of the so-called religious people. Here's a quote by a Bible historian. The drive for upward social mobility by advancing economically became the obsession of the people. It could even be said that the Corinthians worshiped wealth for with wealth, came the other significant markers of social advancement, such as reputation, occupation, neighborhood, education, religious status, political involvement, and athletic achievement. In short, the culture was openly materialistic in its quest for praise and esteem. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read that, I thought, man, he's talking about America. And then the next line, the author writes, One would be hard-pressed to tell if that was written for Corinth or the Western world. But what this materialism and drive for social status created, listen, was religious people who just wanted to gain more knowledge but did not want to be told to do anything. 
They didn't want to be told to go share the gospel. They didn't want to be told to live their lives for the glory of God. Religion had become a place for working your social contacts so as to ensure health, wealth, and social standing. Ouch. Am I right? That sounds a little too familiar for me. But it was into this culture that God sent Paul as a missionary. It is into this culture that Paul writes 2 Corinthians, in which he does three things. He defends his apostleship and ministry. He encourages the believers in the midst of suffering. And he teaches them their responsibility as ministers of reconciliation. So my outline this morning, I'm going to begin with explaining what is the ministry of reconciliation. And then we're going to discuss Paul's three motivations for engaging in the ministry of reconciliation. So first, point number one, what is the ministry of reconciliation? The verb to reconcile literally means to exchange or to receive one back into favor. Every time it is used in the Bible, it is referred to God as the active reconciler and human beings as the passive ones being reconciled. So folks, reconciliation is the gospel. Reconciliation is that in the garden, man and God had a perfect relationship, but man sinned and broke that relationship. But God, in his love, did not leave us in that separated state. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to take away our sin so that belief in Jesus, through Jesus, we can now be reconciled back to God. The relationship can be restored. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 give a great picture of this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Notice the word alienated right there. It means separate. You're, you don't belong with me. He, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That presenting holy back to God, that's the reconciliation. That through Jesus' death, we can be presented back to God. The word ministry means work or service. So the ministry of reconciliation then is the human work that we undertake to proclaim the gospel message that through Jesus, you can be reconciled to God. In short, it's evangelism. That's what the ministry of reconciliation is. It's, it's evangelism. It's the work we do to evangelize the lost. Now we move to the three main motivations Paul gives for carrying out this ministry. Number one, ministers of reconciliation are compelled by the fear of the Lord. In verse 11, Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now I'm going to deal with the word persuade first and then come back and deal with the fear of the Lord. The idea of persuasion is, is uh, dealt with in your growth group material for this week, but I want to hit on it here because I don't know about you, but the word like in English persuade, to me, it has a negative connotation. It kind of makes me think of like coercion, manipulation, or deceit. That's not at all what's going on here. It's a, it's a word very similar to implore, which is used in verse 20. The idea behind this word is appealing to the heart. Okay. This led Spurgeon to comment about this word, this idea. This is what he said. If I should merely tell you the gospel, though God might bless it, I have not done all my duty. To, to merely inform the intellect is not the minister's sole work. 
We are to proclaim, but we are to do far more. We are to beseech, persuade, and pray. We are not merely to convince the intellect, but persuade the heart. You know how a beggar bows his knees and implores you when he is starving to give him some bread? With the same earnestness, we are bound to beseech sinners to be saved. (laughs) This is the point of persuasion. It's not, hey man, you know, that that Jesus guy's pretty cool. I mean, you know, I believe in him. If you you want to, you can. I mean, that's up to you, you know. Now, God can use that, sure, right? God can use that. And before I get emails, as Pastor Jeff says, or as before he gets emails about me, um, I am not in any way saying that our ability to persuade humanly is what saves anybody. That is not what I'm saying. Paul condemns that in 1 Corinthians. He condemns lofty, eloquent wisdom and words of all that. He says, no. He says that it is God who saves, but... He says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. We want to be and need to be the best planters and waterers we can be. So we persuade. We we implore, we beseech people to come to Christ and be reconciled to God. Now, the fear of the Lord that Paul is referring to here. You have to go back up a couple verses to verses 9 and 10. Now, remember, the chapter divisions and all that stuff... The headings in your Bible, those are not original. Those are not inspired. Those are added later to help us find stuff. And sometimes they get in the way. So go back up to verse 9 and 10. Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What Paul here is addressing is the future judgment that is coming for all believers when our works will be judged to be either good or evil. Our works will be condemned or rewarded. This future judgment of believers is also spoken of in Matthew 6, Luke 19, and 1 Corinthians 3. Now, the judgment seat that Paul's referring to here is the Greek word bema. And this is a very interesting word because it comes from a platform that was in the middle of the city. And on this platform is where the judges in the courts would issue the sentences to the criminals. You've done something wrong and they issue a sentence to you. It was on that platform. On the same platform is where the um, athletic achievements, the winners and the champions of the athletic competitions would receive their rewards. So this is the image that Paul evokes here in verse 10 when he says, There's a judgment coming for all believers. We must appear on the judgment seat. And then he says this. Immediately he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, when I was in seminary, they taught us, you know, how to interpret the Bible and some principles and techniques to help us in our interpretation. And one of those techniques is to ask yourself, what is not being said here? Or what else could he have said? So this is interesting. Paul does not say this, knowing that there's a coming judgment, go to church. Knowing there's a coming judgment, pray real hard. Or knowing the fear of the Lord, read your Bible a lot. Or knowing the fear of the Lord, be a good husband and work really hard and provide for your family. Those are all really, really good things. You can't, we can't miss this. Paul says, in light of the coming judgment of your works as a believer, go persuade 
That ought to make you a little uncomfortable because the implication is that's what you're going to be judged on. Did we persuade? And if that's not enough, Paul goes on to speak not just about actions, but about the intentions of our heart. In verse 11, he says, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast not about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So Paul is defending his ministry here. He's saying that God knows my heart and God knows your heart. There's obviously some Corinthians who were too focused on outward appearance. They were too focused on education, things that you can, that you can achieve or see. And Paul says, no, the inward motivation is what's important. And there's implication there that that's what we're going to be judged on too. Then I love verse 13. He says, if we are beside ourselves, which that word beside ourselves means crazy. So if we're crazy, it's for God. Now, a lot of the commentators don't know exactly what led them to say this. It could have just merely been the fact that Paul was zealous for Christ. You know, and all the things that he did made the world look at him and go, you're crazy. That's more than likely what it was. But it, it made me ask the question, what do people say I'm crazy about? My wife, my kids, Duke basketball. Like what, but like, what am I crazy about? If people accuse me of being crazy, I want it to be for God. And that's what Paul's saying here. I'm crazy for God. Now, the Bema, the judgment seat for the believers, is not all Paul has in mind here. There's a near context, which is that, the judgment seat of Christ. But there's also a far context interpretation. You see, Paul knows intimately well that there's another judgment coming. The great white throne judgment from where non-believers will be eternally condemned. Romans 2, Revelation 20. So Paul has here what we call on the mission field, a burden for the lost. Paul knows that people will be born, will live, and will die without ever having heard the name Jesus. And that burdens him. It burdens him to say, persuade, go, do you care? Is what he's saying. The fear of the Lord, the judgment is coming, so go. This is what led Paul in Romans 15 to write, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never heard, have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This idea of People never having heard that drove Paul to say, go and persuade, which leads to the second motivation. Ministers of reconciliation are controlled by the love of Christ. Verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Now, the word control has two main meanings, two main implications. Number one, constraint. This means a great force holding you under its power and pressuring you from all sides. I love that. I love that definition. One translator translated it like this. The love of Christ leaves us no choice. One other commentator said this. All around Paul, the love of Christ pressed upon him as the water in a river presses upon a swimmer and bears him onward down the stream. 
the love of Christ presses in upon him and moves him, calls him to action. The second implication is restraint of the the word control is restraint, which means a force keeping you from something. Now, at, at first, that sounds negative. But guys in the room, we can understand. We love our wife so much. We're restrained by her love to the point that I'm not going to go seek love from somebody else. That's what that means. It's a force that keeps you from something. Paul's saying, I got all the love I need in the love of Christ. I don't need to go find satisfaction somewhere else. I'm restrained by the love of Christ. But what does he mean by the love of Christ? Well, in verse 14, he explains it. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what's the love that constrains Paul? It's the gospel message. That God, in his love, sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, which means in your place. Take the wrath and punishment from God that we were due. It is this love that constrains Paul. Jesus died for us. However, this is also not all Paul has in mind here. Paul, perhaps more than most, knew God's love in an intimate way. We know from the book of Acts what Paul's life was like before he was a Christian. He was persecuting Christians. He was trying to stamp out Christianity. So you see, it wasn't just the general love of Christ that, con- that controlled Paul, although that's a big deal. It was Paul's own personal experience of salvation. Paul knew where he would be apart from the grace of God. Paul knew, he remembered his sins from before. He realized the glory of grace of his own salvation as seen in the love of Christ. And that compelled him forward. Psalm 51 is another great example of this. I won't go into much detail here because Pastor Jeff just preached on this last month. But Psalm 51 is the psalm that David writes of a cry for mercy and repentance after the prophet Nathan had confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba and with Uriah. So after Paul cry, after David cries for mercy and repentance, in verse 13, he says, Then I will tell transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So telling transgressors your ways is evangelism. And then do you see the reconciliation? Sinners will return to you. It's oh, beautiful, right? But David was so overwhelmed with the fact that God loved him and forgave him and was merciful to him that he said, now I will go and tell. There's a great book called The Brokenhearted Evangelist by Andrew Walker. The whole book is about this idea that your own experience of salvation should compel you to be an evangelist. He writes this. Do you know and feel the blessedness of your sins forgiven? The joy of having had your transgressions blotted out? The rejoicing of having the record of your sins before God's eyes utterly done away with through the blood of Jesus Christ? Is this your experience and yet you have nothing to say? Will you know nothing of the excitement of sharing what you have received with someone else? If you say nothing, it calls into question the reality or at least the depth of your saving experience in the blood of Christ. Folks, 
your own salvation, my own salvation, the love of Christ as in where we are as reconciled to God compels us, controls us to go out. The last motivation, point number four, ministers of reconciliation are motivated by the responsibility of being an ambassador for Christ. We begin in verse 16 with this point. Paul says, we regard no one according to the flesh. So again, he's addressing the culture. He's addressing the fact that they look at people from what's on the outside. Paul says, no, we see people as they stand in relation to Christ. We see them spiritually. The way the world sees them on the outside doesn't matter. So when Christine and I were overseas, we were told as part of our training that we were only ever going to meet two kinds of people. Believers and non-believers. If we met a non-believer, our job was to share Christ with them. If we met a believer, our job was to disciple them in the faith and bring them to maturity. That's it. One of two kinds of people. What's on the outside didn't matter. That's what Paul's saying here. We view people spiritually. Are they a friend of God or an enemy of God? Are they reconciled or unreconciled? And then based on what they are, determines what we do with them, which leads to verse 17. Verse 17 speaks of profound truth about someone who is a Christian. They are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That's true, but that's not really Paul's point. His point is in how we regard people. Those who are in Christ are new creations. The old has gone, but not all are in Christ. Not all are new creations, which leads into verse 18 and 19. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting us with the ministry of reconciliation. You remember earlier when I talked about every time the word reconcile is used, it's God as the active reconciler and man as the passive recipients. Well, Paul is reminding the arrogant Corinthians of this fact. All this is from God. God in Christ is reconciling you. (laughs) He's reminding them of this truth. Now, the word entrust in verse 19 is a very key word in the text. The word entrust means to deliver over into one's care. To deliver over into one's care. So Jesus has entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. He has delivered it to us. It's in our care. Paul's point here is a staggering point. It's the same word Paul uses in Galatians chapter 2 when he says he has been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. Now at the time, he was the only one. He was the only one taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So this idea led Spurgeon to comment this. He said, the man lives grandly who is as earnest in sharing Christ as if the very existence of Christianity depended upon himself. View yourselves as grains of wheat predestined to seed the world. Now, I'm going to press this a little bit because here's here's Paul's point. But I'm going to try to put it into our everyday language. So what if, let's pretend for a minute that you were the only Christian in the world. You. There are no other Christians in the world. You're the only one. You've been given the great commission, Matthew 28, go and make disciples, baptize and teach. You've been given the ministry of reconciliation to go persuade. 
What would happen if you were it? Well, you know, God, I, God, I really tried. I mean, I really wanted to. I just, I'm just so busy. I just never got around to it. You know, Monday night, my kids got soccer practice. And then Tuesday night, my other kids got violin lessons. And then I play golf on Wednesdays. And then there's college football on Saturdays. You can't expect me to miss that. And then, you know, God, I just need some me time. I just need to kick my feet up and just have some me time. That's what's important. So God, I'm really sorry. Like I, I, I wanted to, I just never got around to it. Is that what would happen? Or would you take the ministry of reconciliation seriously and be used of God to make disciples? to take the gospel to other people and have them be reconciled unto God like you are. Now, all of that leads to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So what is an ambassador and what does an ambassador do? An ambassador represents. An ambassador speaks on behalf of someone else. Their words and actions are not their own. Number two, an ambassador brings a message. Ambassadors are always sent to deliver a message from the person they're representing to someone else. And number three, an ambassador is strategic. An ambassador operates in a way to seek reconciliation and keep reconciliation between two parties, which means they know that what they say and do will always reflect back either negatively or positively on the person that they represent. They consider everything that they do. Now, a few years ago, Christine and I had the privilege to actually meet the U.S. ambassador in the country where we lived. She's a phenomenally wonderful, nice and sweet lady. She invited us into her home for dinner. Um, We got to meet some of her family. It was a wonderful evening. Now, obviously, I did not know then that I would be preaching this message now, but I have an inquiring mind, and so I thought, I'm never going to meet an ambassador again, so let me ask her a bunch of questions. One of the questions I asked her was like, hey, you can be honest with me. Do you get nervous? I mean, like, this is a big deal. You represent America. And she said, yeah, I get nervous. (laughs) She said, I feel the weight She said, everybody knows that I'm the U.S. ambassador. So everything I say, everything I do, I know they're taking that as coming from America. And then she said this, but it's the greatest privilege in the world. Obviously, there's some, a lot of things we can ask about that. Do people even know that you're a Christian? Do people know you represent Christ? I think for some of us, we don't want people to know because the way we live our lives would reflect negatively on Christ. So we're glad people don't know. Do we actually consider that the words that we say and the things that we do, the steps that we take represent Christ, either positively or negatively? And then is it a privilege? Do we view it as a privilege? Being an ambassador is the reason you were saved. Or more specifically, speaking the message of reconciliation as an ambassador is the reason you were saved. 1 Peter 2, 9. We've been talking about this a lot recently, but 1 Peter 2, 9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
That's why you're a holy nation. That's why you're redeemed. That's why you're saved. A lot of people ask me how to share the gospel. How do I share the gospel? What do I say? Great questions. I'm really glad you asked, but I'm going to start referring people to verse 21. Verse 21 is a magnificent verse that explains the gospel in one verse. It's 15 words in the Greek. So just if you memorize this, you'll know the gospel. For our sake, he, which is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So the perfect Jesus became sin for our sake so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, why is becoming the righteousness of God important? That's how reconciliation happens. We become the righteousness of God through the death of Jesus. Our sins are wiped away and then we can go back to God. We can be reconciled. So what this morning? I have one main question and then some smaller questions to follow up. Here's the question. Are you living a life consumed with the ministry of reconciliation? Now, before you answer and before we answer, I want to take a minute and to point out what's not up here. Again, what does Paul not say? Notice Paul doesn't say you're a minister of reconciliation when you have enough time. Or or when you learn how to be one or when you have all the answers or when your life calms down a little bit or when you get healthy or when your house sells or this one's my favorite. You know, pastor, I just all my kids are really little right now. And, you know, the house is just chaos all the time. Once they grow up a little bit and life gets easier, then I'll start taking, you know, I'll start sharing the gospel. I'll start taking that a little more seriously. Now, first off, let me say, I get you. I understand where you're coming from. I've got four kids, an eight-year-old and three five-year-olds. So I feel your pain with that. Our house is chaos. We keep the Lysol company in business, right? Like, okay, so I feel you. I empathize where you're coming from. But here's what I've been told. Go find a parent of a teenager and ask them, hey, does this get any easier? And after they stop laughing, they're going to tell you, no, it does not get any easier. And the reason Paul doesn't mention any of that stuff is simply because those are excuses. Those aren't the real reasons we're not sharing the gospel. They're not. The real reasons we're not sharing the gospel is because we're not compelled by the, by the fear of the Lord. We're not controlled by the love of Christ and we don't take seriously our role as ambassadors. Because here's the truth, folks. If we do those three things, we will share the gospel. We will find the time. We will do it in spite of the chaos. We will learn how. Paul's point is we can't have these three things and not share the gospel. We can't. It's impossible. Sorry. Okay. So I want to close this morning with an illustration from our time overseas. Now, these stories are deeply personal to Christine and I because we knew uh, some of the folks involved, uh, either directly or we knew their friends and, and their coworkers. You need to know, though, before I start, that in most places in the world, living as an ambassador for Christ costs something. It's just the honest truth. You have to seriously count the cost of becoming a Christian and living a life that honors the Lord 
overseas. And as missionaries, we would often feel a heavy burden because we knew as we led people to share Christ that the cost they were going to have to pay was much higher than the cost we would have to pay. So, for example, one young college student, upon her conversion, began sharing the gospel with her roommates and the people in her dorm. The authorities quickly found out about this, and her scholarship was taken away, and she was denied graduation. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you and me, but in a culture where, in an honor-shame culture, and where they value education so highly, to be punished in this way brought tremendous shame to her and to her family. Another young mom, she was married with two little boys. Uh, She was an elementary school teacher. Upon her conversion, she realized that she could use her platform as a teacher to share, share the gospel with the kids and with the parents that she built relationships with over time. Eventually, the authorities found out what she was doing and they kidnapped her in the middle of the day at school, they took her. No warning, no note, no communication whatsoever. The husband reached out to local authorities, to the police and to the government for answers. And all he was told was that she had broken the law and was being detained. Now from the day we got this news until the day we left the country was about 16 months. In that span of time, no one had heard anything from her. So the husband has no, has no idea where his wife is or what's being done to her. The two boys, 16 months, where's my mom? Then another young man, upon his conversion, felt called to ministry. He felt called to be a pastor. He said, hey, I get this. I want to go be a pastor. So he went through pastoral training and quickly became the pastor of an underground church. He and his wife became pregnant, as most young couples do. They were excited about welcoming a new baby into their family. About a week before she was due, he was arrested and put in prison for being the being a pastor. While he was in prison, the wife went into labor and they were poor. They didn't have financial means or access to good medical care. And she tried to deliver the baby at home by herself and was unsuccessful. Both her and the baby died. And then they released the husband. So he goes home to that Now, why, why do I tell you these? These are not popular stories, right? These aren't stories that fill missionary newsletters. They're not stories that are plastered on the walls of churches. They're not stories we like to tell. Here's why I tell you this. With each of these stories, the persecution could have been avoided if they would have kept their mouth shut, right? If, if the college girl did not share the gospel with her roommates, she would have kept her scholarship and would have been able to graduate. If the mom had kept her mouth shut and not shared the gospel with the kids and the moms as they came in, she wouldn't have been kidnapped. And if the dad or if the young man had not 
wanted to become a pastor and preach Christ, maybe his wife and kid would still be alive. What they did, they took the ministry of reconciliation seriously. They counted the cost and they said, you know what, this is what we are called to do. And we're, we, we sang a song of, of just a few minutes ago, wherever you lead me, whatever it cost me. Do we really mean that? We had the privilege of actually talking to the college girl later after the fact, and we were in a group of people and somebody actually asked her, why did you do this? <laughs> you know what she said? She said, I realized that I'm probably the only Christian in the whole dorm. She said, most of them are seniors and are about to graduate and go off and be scattered all over the country. She said, if I don't tell them who will, she gets it. She's taking it seriously. So this often, this has got me and Christine to think about this, I mean, multiple times. We've asked ourselves this question. What if they changed the laws in America? Okay, what if, they, what if this was the new law? You can be a Christian individually, so I can pray myself, read the Bible myself, that's fine. But it became illegal to share the gospel. If you shared the gospel, you could get arrested, beaten, tortured, imprisoned, maybe killed. What do you think would happen to Christianity in America? What would happen to us in this room? Here's what I fear would happen. I fear none of our lives would change at all. That's what I fear, because we're not doing it anyway. We wouldn't have to live in fear of this. You know, overseas, this is one of the most terrifying sounds you can hear. You know why? It might be somebody coming to knock on your door to get you because you're a Christian, because you're sharing the gospel. We don't live in fear of that, right? We don't, we don't live in that. We, so why am I telling you this? Am I trying to guilt you? Am I trying to shame you into something? No, I hope you don't feel that. What I'm trying to get us to understand is here in America, we've, something's just wrong. Something's just off with the way we live the Christian life. It's just, it's just wrong. Something's off about it. Here's what it is. We've bought into the American lie that everything is about you. Everything's about me. We bought the lie that if it doesn't make you happy, don't do it. If it's dangerous, don't do it. Or here's the big one. If it limits your freedom, don't do it. That's what America tells us. Folks, our freedom ought to cause us to lead the way in world evangelism. We don't live in fear of being killed for sharing the gospel. And yet our freedom has caused us to go the other way. I'm consumed with my own life and all the things that I got going on. I don't have time for this other stuff. So who's your one? I'm coming back around full circle. Who's your one is a chance to get it right. To start small, start with one person. Prayerfully choose one person and say, you know what? I'm going to start now and I'm going to get it right. I'm going to be consumed with the ministry of reconciliation for this person. And just see what God does. You'll be amazed. So I want to ask you, what is your standing before Christ? Before we talk about sharing the gospel and the details of that next week and after, we have to do some self-examination. So what is your standing before Christ? That's the first question we need to ask. 
I know some of you in this room are not believers. You have not been reconciled to God. You're still in your sin. You're an enemy of God. I implore you. I beseech you. I beg you. I persuade you. Come. Be reconciled to God. Don't walk out of here still in your sin. Why would you do that? When you have a free gift of God, the salvation through Jesus Christ, and you can return back into a right relationship with God. Secondly, for those of us who have been reconciled, first, let's praise God for being the great reconciler, for reaching down and sending Jesus to reconcile us and to buy us back. That's our first duty is to praise the Lord. Secondly, I want you to ask yourself, which of the three motivations, the fear of the Lord, the love of Christ, or being an ambassador is keeping you from being consumed with the ministry of reconciliation? Maybe it's more than one. Maybe it's all three. That's okay. You have time right now to let the Lord deal with you. Honestly, ask yourself, check your heart now. Let the Lord deal with you. I pray earnestly that he will. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. You are the great reconciler. You have sent your son out of your great love for us. You sent Jesus to die. Father, I fear we take that for granted. I fear that love does not control us. That love does not constrain or restrain us. I pray that, I fear that we're not living in fear of you in a holy, reverent fear We don't have a burden for the lost. We don't take our ministry of reconciliation seriously. God, I pray you convict, you work now. Move our hearts towards you as we worship you this morning. I pray we worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina. Please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.